the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're welcoming back Kevin Brennan. He's the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. And we've had uh, Kevin on a number of times over these past months, giving us an update from the County Board of Health's position concerning and information concerning COVID-19. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, Nick. Good evening, and thank you again for having me. So, uh, so wonderful to have somebody from the the top over here giving us some detailed information as to what's going on. Well, we're in the first week of October, and uh, have we we learned much about uh, COVID, and, and how are we doing as a population? Are we uh, following the rules, and are are we seeing results in in that? Well, we are seeing, I, I think, first of all, Nick, we'll, we'll talk about it maybe as from a statewide view, is that we're, we're looking better as a state um, when we talk about, if everybody's familiar with the Ohio Public Health Advisory System, which is the system that uh, assigns different colors to different levels of urgency associated with COVID. And people may remember that we were a red county for several weeks, and we have yes. moved into orange. Now, I, I believe, if I'm correct, we're in our fifth or sixth week of orange right now. So um, so things are, you know, settling a little bit. Uh, our case counts uh, per week are going down. Uh, so we're encouraged by that. So it appears that, you know, people are becoming a little more vigilant. Uh, and people, as anecdotally, I think we can all say, we're seeing people being more attentive to wearing masks and social distancing. Uh, so, you know, we feel like we're in a better spot than we were as I look back at my notes here, when uh, you and I spoke in July, uh, and we were at our peak of 919 cases uh, for that that week in the middle of July, we've come a long way since then. Uh, last week, our case count was right around 319. So we've seen that go down by almost two-thirds uh, here in a handful of months. So that's very encouraging. Well, we have the uh, colder weather coming in now. The, the restaurants now are going to have to basically bring people in off of their patios unless they have heaters out there. Um, and it's uh, getting cold, cooler already. Are, are we seeing any uh, uptick related to the the concept of it being cold? Not necessarily yet. Um, I think what we're going to see is, you know, as, as I just said, you know, we're encouraged by what we see. And I would put a, a, a cautionary flag with that because as you mentioned, we're coming up on a season where we're going to obviously see more incidents of cold. Uh, we're going to see flu. Uh, we're likely going to see norovirus, and we're all going to be indoors a little more. So when we combine all those things together, along with um, as as things stabilize here, we may see more children and students uh, return to school on an in-person basis. So if the convergence of all those things happen here over the next few months, It'll be very interesting to see, uh, you know, if if we're able to maintain uh, the stability we have now, or if we see things start to spike a little bit. So I think that's really the great unknown here. But 
having said that, we have to move forward, right? If we think we're in a better place and we can do some things that we haven't been able to do for a while, uh, the only way we're going to find out if it works is if we try. Uh, I heard anecdotally, meaning not statistically confirmed, uh, that there was one school district out on the west side of the county that uh, they started school in person and no COVID cases, but also an interesting phenomenon is that with regard to all of our conscious awareness of uh, washing hands and social distancing and wearing masks, there's been a drop or an eradication of things like uh, cold, sore throats, and the usual kids stuff that kids get into. Have, have you been seeing any of that or hearing any of those similar stories? Um, not necessarily, but I will say, though, that this is the time of year, Nick, when we start to conduct flu surveillance. Uh, so as part of that, we look at things like um, the consumption of over-the-counter medicines, uh, you know, from, from, from pharmacies and drugstores, uh, student absentee rates, um, hospitalizations. So we're going to start to really ramp that up here probably over the next couple of weeks. We've seen a very minimal amount at this point of flu activity. But um, as we know, uh, by the time we get into November, we'll, we'll probably see that accelerate a good bit. But right now, we're just at the very, very beginning stages. When we talk about uh, November for flu, we talk about October for flu shots. Is this the month now we should all get our shots if we haven't it gotten is. them yet? Absolutely. Um, and, and the reason we say to get them now is because, as you mentioned, the weather's changing. It's getting colder. Uh, we're going to be indoors. We're going to be kind of uh, testing our ability to social distance here effectively uh, as winter comes. Uh, so the thing we want to remind you about is that it takes 10 days to 14 days for your body to build up full immunity once you receive your flu shot. So it's not as if you sort of get this sense that you that you ought to do it or maybe you don't feel well and you want to go do it, uh, you know, you're, you're still going to have that 10 to 14 day period to let your body catch up to be fully protected. Uh, now, we, we talk about because of the cold and, and indoors, uh, the, the flu doesn't become more potent and more transmissible just because of the temperature, but it's the temperature that drives people indoors. Is that more correct? That is correct. We we get into closer proximity. We all start to do, you know, the things that we've talked about with COVID. We start to touch, you know, commonly commonly touch surfaces. We have doorknobs. We have computers. We have refrigerator handles, right? We, uh, you know, all those different things that that we all touch uh, together. Uh, we start to spend more time indoors. Um, our houses don't get ventilated, right? We just sort of have that that feel of being a little closer together and breathing air more commonly and getting in closer proximity to each other. So as I said, this is going to be a real test of our ability to effectively social distance, keep cleaning and disinfecting, uh, and, and also maintaining our distance. Because as we know with the holidays coming, you know, people generally, families get together and, and people want to see each other and they want to hug each other and, you know, be a little close. And that's something we're really going to have to watch, not only for COVID, but as you mentioned, certainly for flu. Can, can people still visit with people safely, uh, and do they have to wear masks all the time? Uh, because I noticed that a lot of people, they have a close circle of friends who seem to be a trusted circle of friends, and meaning that they're, uh, during normal times, they're distancing and washing and doing all these things. Uh, how safe can we feel with uh, having like a, a dinner, having two people over at our house? Well, I think, you know, much like we have 
you know, people within our household, right? We know that those of us that live with other people, um, you know, we're not wearing masks um, usually when we're at home with each other, right? Because we're, we're seeing each other and, and we're with each other all the time. And if we would be exposing each other, we probably would be ill by now. Um, I, I think the other thing is with that close circle of friends, there's a real honor system there because once those people that are your friends who are not living with you go into other arenas and visit with other people or go other places and take a chance of being exposed, um, you know, even if they're very diligent in wearing their masks and washing their hands, there's always that, that, that outside possibility that something could be entered in. Um, but I think typically we've all kind of become comfortable a little bit with the people that we trust and the people that uh, we feel we're safe getting around. Um, but I certainly would not want to let my our guard down. Like, um, you know, just for instance, my I visit with my mother uh, usually on a weekly basis. And for the first several months of the pandemic, we were visiting uh, outdoors because I just didn't feel safe coming in contact with her. Um, but now, you know, that we're, we're both wearing masks, we're maintaining our social distance. So we're able to see each other, but we're still not getting, you know, much any closer than six to eight feet from each other just because we want to maintain that integrity. And also, you know, with somebody who's older, you want to be very careful that, you know, you, that you're not putting them in a compromised position. And now that we're into October and we have a number of months under our belt with regard to COVID-19 and the transmission of it, do we have any more clear understanding of what the virus does from a transmission standpoint with regard to it being an aerosol? And and I break that down into two two groups. Number one would be people who are asymptomatic, but they're pre-symptomatic. Within two to four days, they're going to come down with symptoms. Or people who will go through a whole course of being infectious without ever having symptoms. Uh, do we have any better idea as to how many of these mysterious people are out there, how uh, frequent we can run into them, who have no symptoms, won't have symptoms, but they're spreading? Or is that still a well, mystery? Well, we've heard. Um, I don't know that that's been really nailed down with any definition yet, Nick. I know oh, probably around the beginning of summer we were hearing numbers that, that were postulating that it could be as high as 30, 35% of people who transmit the virus or who come in contact and actually become infected with the virus uh, could be asymptomatic. Um, just as a parallel, that's very similar to what we see with norovirus. Uh, it's estimated that between 30 and 40% of people who contract norovirus could be asymptomatic. Um, but that you know, I haven't seen anything that really has followed that up and brought clear definition to that. So I know that was, I don't want to call that speculation at that point. I think that was a supposition at that point, but I don't know that we've really found that to be, you know, something that's been proven. Um, but just in the in the principles of public health, when we look at this, you know, we, we, we were very concerned with the asymptomatic people. Uh, and that's why we're still giving you the caution as to not gather in large groups, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the philosophy behind not having mass gatherings is to make sure that we're not, you know, unwittingly exposing ourselves to someone who may not even know they're ill and then unknowingly, again, transmit that to other people. Well, that's the masking and hand washing and so forth. We're talking to Kevin Brennan. He's the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. And we're talking about what's going on here in early October 2020 in Cuyahoga County about COVID-19. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. I can get no satisfaction. 
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Kevin Brennan, the communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're talking about what's going on here in Cuyahoga County during this first week in October 2020. And uh, Kevin, uh, thank you again for, for joining us. We always appreciate the insights you bring to us. Oh, certainly. And, and likewise, we appreciate you giving us a platform to try to spread some information to people across the county. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. Uh, we, we look at you as being the re- reporter from the side of science here, where uh, whatever people might feel or think, the fact is the science, like you mentioned, the norovirus, uh, which we're familiar with from hearing about how the norovirus and uh, how that spreads on a, on a ship, on a cruise ship. But the other issue is looking at the county statistics, uh, we have about 12,000 and some cases that were totally reported from the beginning of the pandemic and a presumed amount of recovered cases of over 11,000, which leaves over 1,000 cases that are presumed active here in Cuyahoga County. Is that how we look at those numbers? That's a, that's a pretty good, you know, without me, you, you or I being epidemiologists, I think that's a, a good at-home method to use. Um, and, and if you look at our our uh, weekly epidemiology summaries that we're putting out each Friday afternoon, the last one we put out, we're estimating that the number of people who have recovered uh, in our jurisdiction is near 91%. So we're very encouraged by that. Um, you know, we're, we're very glad to see that. Um, the one unfortunate aspect is our fatality rate, uh, if I'm correct, was generally between about 4 to 5%. Uh, which puts us kind of right in line with uh, a lot of other um, data that we see. So we're, but again, we're we're very pleased to see that nearly 91% of people are presumed recovered in our jurisdiction. You know, talking about mortality uh, with President Trump uh, and President Trump uh, being found to be infected with COVID-19, the news media has just been more saturating with COVID-19 information. One of the things that came out is the fatality rate of men over 60. Is that something that uh, we are recognizing here in Cuyahoga County? Well, I think we know just based on our experiences early on when, when the presumption was that this might have been an illness that predominantly affected older people, and we unfortunately saw a lot of uh, issues in our long-term care facilities, um, you know, that presented a lot of problems for us. So we certainly are still very concerned with, uh, I think, with each decade uh, when we see the difference in the 40 to 50-year-olds and the 50 to 60 and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we see more risk certainly associated as people get older. So, um, yeah, so the president is in, you know, in my non-scientific interpretation of this, uh, would certainly be in a high-risk category just given his age. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the amount of people that he comes in contact with. So uh, from what I heard, though, is that the uh, fatality rate for older men is, is higher than for older women, and it's still a, a big risk factor to worry about. So people in those age groups should pay attention to uh, monitoring these risks and trying to conduct themselves in such a way to minimize their contact with uh, people who might have been infected or exposed, I would suppose. Absolutely. I I think we're still in that mindset, Nick, of we want to keep our circle uh, small, right? We we don't want to resume life as typically what we would call normal. Um, You know, we still want to be 
cautious. We still want to pay very close attention, as you said, to hand washing and, and layering, you know, with masking and, and cleaning and disinfecting. So um, even though, you know, this is all going in the right direction, uh, according to the data that we see, it is certainly not the time to relax. It's not It's not gone yet. Well, to figure out and to monitor, and I know you guys do a lot of testing and monitoring of testing, one of the statistics we have been watching has been the percentage of positive tests. When you say test uh, 100 people, how many of those tests are positive? And watching that go up and down, we, we don't want to have 20% positive, but then again, the lower we get that percentage, the better. Uh, of the testing we're doing now here in early October, uh, do you have a percentage of positives, you think, or a range where we're looking at positives? Well, as part of our weekly summaries, we provide um, a breakdown of positivity rates. Um, what we do is we provide a, a rate according to the information that we receive from our local hospitals. Uh, and then we also have a new statistic that we've added in recent weeks, which we get, um, which shows us positivity rates in these long-term care settings, such as nursing homes or assisted living or group homes. So uh, what we've seen in the, from the hospital information is we have seen a decline um, from the end of August where our positivity rate was at around 4%. Uh, here at the end of September, that has been reduced to around 2.5%. Now, when we look at nursing home testing, um, we just have a very small window of a couple weeks there in September, but that is also right about at 2.5% as well. So we're encouraged, again, by seeing these numbers go down. I think the thing that kind of offsets this a little bit is when we do community testing, uh, sometimes we're seeing higher rates of positivity. When we're just having, you know, open up a site in a community and have people come by and just get tested, uh, sometimes those rates are near 10%. So there is certainly, that shows us that there's certainly the presence of the illness that's very viable out in the community. Um, so we still, as I said, we, we want to be vigilant and, uh, you know, keep our guard up as much as we can. Well, that, that tells us, I think, just as laymen out here trying to still exist in, in our society, is that if we go out to a, a, a public uh, place like a, a, like a bar or a large party center and there's a couple hundred people around, uh, I think chances are pretty good that there's probably at least a couple people there in that group that are infected might be putting everybody at risk. Is that a Absolutely. fair assumption? I would, I, think I would not disagree with that at all. And I think the other thing with that, Nick, is, you know, you don't have assurance when you go into a large group of people that people are taking the necessary precautions. I mean, very unfortunately, we saw that with the incident in Washington, D.C. last week where a number of people became infected as a result of getting together at an event and not properly social distancing or wearing masks. So, it certainly, you know, is a very realistic situation. So, again, you know, we want to caution people. The um, key to this is testing, and uh, I understand that there's talk of there being a saliva test that can be readily available, uh, can be showing a response and uh, a determination as to whether or not one's infected or not very quickly. And as a saliva test, they can be made available by the thousands. Have you heard anything about that? And are we close to getting those distributed to schools and hospitals and other places? Well, we have heard about that, and we know that that is certainly the plan going forward. 
Um, I don't know how close we are in terms of if we're, you know, a handful of days away, weeks away. That I'm not certain of the timeline. Um, the only thing that, that we would have hesitation about is just the accuracy of the test. Um, because as we've seen with some of the, um, some of the rapid testing, uh, they can produce false positives at a higher rate than uh, something like the PCR test, which is like the long swab that goes up to the top of your nose. Uh, much like we saw with Governor DeWine, right? He had the, the one false positive, and then he came back and had the more in-depth PCR test and then got the assurance that he was, in fact, negative. So that's the only really caveat is we just, you know, we want to be we want to be measured in, in looking at these and hoping that, you know, the accuracy of these tests um, can, can be something that we can eventually rely on. Well, uh, this is a work in progress, and we've been keeping track uh, of what's been happening every month with you. And uh, we certainly appreciate you coming on board here and letting us know what's going on. We'll talk to you again uh, next month or sooner if, if there's a need to get you on here and basically tell us more about what's going on. So anyway, we'd like to thank Kevin Brennan, the communications officer of the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, who joined us today to uh, talk about what's going on with COVID-19 here in Cuyahoga County. Kevin, thank you so much. Absolutely, Nick, and thank you again for the opportunity. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're happy to welcome back Associate Professor from Cuyahoga Community College, John Kersey, who's our expert on disinformation with computers and the Internet and all that that disinformation is doing to us. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us, as always. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on being named a distinguished alumni at Kent State also, Nick. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that, that was very nice of them to do that. Uh, but Kent State is a wonderful institution, uh, which is my alma mater. And, of course, Tri-C. I taught there for a while when I left the military. So I always loved Tri-C as well. But we're living through a time of disinformation uh, with everything we get off the computer and off the Internet. And I know you've been actually working in that area and giving us updates as far as what is going on? So at, at the current time, uh, what's the latest we have from, let's say, the law enforcement side of the House and the FBI, Homeland Security, and other counterterrorism group, or groups? What uh, What is the status of disinformation right now? Are, are we being uh, bombarded with it? Are we under attack? Yes and yes, to be brief. If you look closely, the FBI is doing multiple warnings each week now about disinformation activities. Uh, primarily, they're, they're warning about Russia. Uh, this past week, they put out a warning about professional and association publications that would publish fake research findings or fake results that would be designed to sway public opinion in some way, shape, or form. And this is nothing new. This has been going on for a long time. Under the former Soviet Union, they did similar types of things. Uh, some East German research publication would put out something that basically was nothing more than part of a Soviet Union disinformation campaign. But the FBI has taken it upon itself to try to warn people more about those types of activities right now. 
there's also a lot of disinformation stemming from the People's Republic of China. People that we know are, are basically um, putting out inauthentic information about COVID-19 and about the presidential election. Uh, one thing I will say is that Facebook and Twitter have been stepping up when they're able to identify, uh, they call them inauthentic accounts or accounts that they realize mm-hmm. are kind of phony, they're taking them down. So, so that's good. But uh, the situation was bad to begin with. And then with the president going into the hospital with COVID-19, there's been a whole new set of disinformation. But we can talk about that later. We, we can. Are there some things that are being said about COVID now that uh, the mainstream sort of is picking up on that we think is really uh, disinformation coming from China or some other country? Yes. Um, you know, there, there are things flying out there that, that Trump didn't have COVID at all, that the Democrats somehow intentionally infected Trump. And that another oh false stream and thread that I've seen out there is that uh, is that this was a deliberate thing to try uh, on the, the Trump campaign's people to try to avoid debating Biden again. Those are those are three of the how can I say um, more crazy disinformation schemes that have been floated out there in social media in the past several days. And there are others, but those are probably the ones that are getting the most traction. As those things are going on, how can we uh, sort out what is accurate and what's not? Especially you're talking about fake research results. I mean, we're relying on COVID facts coming out of uh, the CDC and uh, the the federal government and our state governments. Are, are those being uh, essentially contaminated by f- bad fake information? Nick, you just hit on a key point. If you're seeing information and you're 100% certain it's coming from the Centers for Disease Control, or if it's about a vaccination and it's coming from the Food and Drug Administration, or if it's coming from the the state of Ohio, and you're sure that that's the the source of the original information, you can take a, a large degree of confidence that that's correct. Here's what happens, and I would encourage the advocates listeners to go to a website called Spot the Troll. S-P-O-T-T-H-E-T-R-O-L-L dot O-R-G, and just go through a quick quiz, because the purpose of it is to make it apparent to all of us how easily somebody that we think is a friend of ours could try to misinform us or disinform us or put bad information into social media feeds. Uh, We've talked on the show about how this has happened, how uh, three or four years ago, the Russians had put uh, groups together in Texas that had more than half a million followers that set up a demonstration and counter-demonstration against each other, same day, same time, same place, all made up, all coming out of Russia, not coming out of the United States. So the whole purpose, in my mind, is educate yourself, consumer. Be aware that if somebody's trying to feed you a line, so to speak, you can track it back and try to figure out uh, if it's accurate or not. Uh, I know mm-hmm. in the past mm-hmm. I've mentioned sheep. You know, look at the source of the information, look at the history of that source, and, and ask yourself, does that source have an agenda? Uh, look at evidence. Uh, explore the details of a claim or a meme and find out if it's backed up by reliable evidence from the CDC or the FBA or some uh, FDA or someone like that. Or if it's just made up, if it's just made up, then your antenna should be really out. Uh, I always say look at emotions, too. Does the source rely on emotions to try to make a point? And if it does, then that probably means you should, especially if it's trying to make a sensational point, I'd be really worried of it. Yep. 
And then finally, you know, when, the pictures. There, oh, there are ahead. ways you can take a picture and you can run it through a service like TinEye.com and you can see if the picture is accurate, if the picture is falsely portraying something. And nowadays we see that a lot with memes and with pictures on the Internet where somebody says it means something and it doesn't. What's still uh, something I find very interesting is how we, we get information from like the CDC. We get information from various governmental sources. Yet when we have this disinformation coming out, as the examples you just gave, they sound so extreme and questionable. Yet people are so – there are so many people who are so willing to just disbelieve the main sources of government information and yet fully wrap their arms around these extreme theories without uh, actually checking them out. Uh, have you run across any explanation as to what's the psychological uh, event going on here that caused people to lean toward all this crazy stuff? Yes, but more strategic than that even is what's happening with the media and the general lack of trust that people have in media sources and whether the media is telling the truth. Uh, the public trust in the media is down somewhere around 25, 30 percentage points, according to polls, compared to where it was in 2000 or in 1995. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but the media doesn't do a service to itself when it's perceived as being very biased or being slanted one way or another. Another aspect of this is a party affiliation. Uh, there is a gap that's never been greater in our country between people who say they're Democrats and how much of the media they believe and people who say that they're Republicans and how little of the, what's, what's news in the media that they believe. So those two factors kind of play into, play into this willingness to accept, I'll, I'll say, alternative information uh, on social media primarily or shared. You know, there, there are people now sharing uh, tens of millions of, of videos every day on private systems, you know, like instant messaging to instant messaging. Somebody puts out a video mm -hmm. and bam, it goes all over the place. Uh, Plandemic is an example that won this summer about um, COVID-19 and and uh, again, it was a false video. It was actually something that was done to try to promote a book that the person who was featured on the video did. But tens of millions of people saw that. Well, the, the more people see things, the more people talk about things, the more it sounds believable. Uh, I know early on in the Trump administration, hearing the term fake news sounded strange, but now it's part of our normal uh, lexicon where we hear accusations of fake news all the time, and I think people are more ready to accept the concept of fake news. And there is fake news. There's fake news in the form of disinformation, and how do we do that? The um, election that we're getting closer to is a big target for disinformation. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a short break here in a little bit, but uh, we want to talk about what are some of the things that are coming down now uh, on the election for President of the United States. Uh, I know that we talked last time about the fact that uh, the Chinese definitely want Trump out and Biden in. The Russians want Biden not to be president and want Trump in. And then we have Iran who's out there just throwing stuff in. So as, as far as you know, what to watch for and, and how does it look and how do we spot it is, is a big issue. 
so, well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to John Kersey from Tri-C. He's a specialist and expert, dedicates his life to ferreting out disinformation on the Internet. We're going to join with John again after the, the break, and we'll be talking more about what's going on with disinformation and this current presidential election coming up. Uh, we'll take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to John Kersey from Tri-C, uh, expert and talking about disinformation and what's going on in the Internet world and the, the world of uh, emails and Twitter and Facebook and so on. John, as always, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Uh, we are just about talking about the presidential election. What are some of the things? We, we hear there's disinformation. Are there any examples of what's disinformation going on? I think you mentioned in the last segment uh, that uh, President Trump did not have COVID. That, that's a story coming from somewhere. Uh, can we tell there, there are, what country there, is generating that? There, that, that? That is probably coming from Russia, though we're not, we're not 100% sure at this point. There are um, more, how can I say this, contention strands of disinformation floating out there uh, than, than one could even imagine in terms of what's happening with the 2020 election campaign. And one of the, uh, one of the contributing factors, which, uh, again, is more up your alley, is the, the president's appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to be uh, a, a next justice of the Supreme Court. So there's all types of, how can I say this? phony news or less than accurate news that's being circulated about her background, her credentials, and all of that. Uh, on top of that, we have the normal election type things that are going on, and there's all kind of phony news around that. And then the third thing that's happening is a bunch of documents are being declassified, being revealed, going back to the 2016 campaign and what really was going on with respect to Hillary Clinton's campaign in, in Russia, which in my mind might actually be a disinformation campaign within a disinformation campaign. Right. But I do want to remind people that the definition of disinformation is manufactured information that is deliberately created and spread with the intent to cause harm or to cause you to think differently about something. So uh, let me give you an example because both sides do this. Um, Biden made a campaign. But, but, by the way, when we say misinformation, we're actually talking about people consciously lying. That's They're correct. knowingly circulating false information with the intent to defraud and trick. Deliberately. Yeah, deliberately. Um, you know, there's been all kind of things about uh, whether Biden's using a teleprompter, for example. And, you know, people who have been there, you know, who've seen him doing answers to questions are saying he did not use a teleprompter, but yet you're seeing video that's popping up that's saying that, that he did. Uh, so that's just a real small example. Um, the, the one I think is really fascinating to me right now is what's happening at the top level, where the director of national intelligence is now declassifying and revealing documents that go back to 2016. And it seems to indicate that uh, the Russians discovered that the Clinton campaign was trying to basically run some form of disinformation claiming that Trump was colluding with the Russians. 
And the reason why this is so significant is it's quite plausible that the Russians took advantage of that. And basically, uh, since the Clinton campaign paid money to produce a dossier known as the Steele dossier, and since Steele himself has a wealth of Russian contacts and influences, and since Steele's primary subsource of information for that dossier, a guy named Igor Denchenko, had been under FBI suspicion of spying for Russia going back to 2009, one could conclude that perhaps people in Russia knew what the Clinton campaign was trying to do, and perhaps they influenced it. Uh, but we don't know that yet for sure. Uh, we're, we're taping before Sunday, and more information is going to be coming out over the next few days. Mm -hmm. But uh, as this information gets declassified and opening, I think we're going to get a, a greater glimpse in terms of what might have been happening if there was a disinformation campaign within a disinformation campaign, so to speak, in the summer and, and fall of 2016. And it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that. And you know, these situations become so confusing because of uh, disinformation and counter-disinformation and responses to disinformation that is disinformation in itself. Uh, what can we do to protect ourselves and maybe is there any absolutely dependable uh, or reliable news source or source where we can count on getting honest stuff? I know I, I'll never forget seeing one of your presentations where you have a chart showing all of the news sources by by putting all their logos on one one slide, and you have them left, right, and center. Uh, too numerous to remember, uh, over 50, it seemed. Uh, but uh, if they're like a top two to five different sources, where would you look at being most dependable at this point, free from disinformation? Nick, let's get to that answer to that in just a minute. I think before sure. we go there, it's important for us to remember that we all have what I call biases. We all are maybe biased toward the right or biased toward the left or biased in favor of one party or biased against another political party. We all have our own points of view. If we acknowledge that, I think that kind of helps prevent us from being disinformed because we should be more open-minded and be willing to maybe look at a different point of view. Now, uh, going back to, to what you had said, yes, there are different charts out there. That, that kind of uh, keep track of media bias. And, and there are media that are more left or more right. You know, if you're looking for media that's more right, you generally look at Fox News. If you're looking at media that's more left, you know, you look at the New York Times or things even further to the left of that, like CNN. Uh, I, I try to look at two or three or four different sources for information. And if there's something in my mind that seems not quite right, I'll look in different sites. I'll look at, say, New York Times and look at Fox and see how they report the same story and realize that the truth probably lies somewhere between the two. That leaves it up to us to interpolate and sort of guess where the truth is. Um, but, but there's no place we can actually rely on. But uh, if we want to sort of base things on the truth, like if there is a story that uh, one of the incredible stories that, that could be manufactured, say, within the next couple of days, the game plan would be is to check different news sources, and, like you say, see how they're reporting it. Go to the left, go to the right. And then and, uh, and what a, I think what, and what, a, disin what a disinformation source would do would take a little 
snippet of truth and then try to twist it or manipulate it in a way that would make you think that that might be the case. Uh, the Chinese tried to do this with the coronavirus, where they said, well, there were military people in the United in, in, Wuhan, in Wuhan, China in the fall, and they brought it in. They actually claimed that back in the spring. And, you know, well, it was true. There were U.S. military presence in that, in that area at the time, but they had nothing to do with, with biological or anything like that. But they took a little bit of information and tried to twist it into a lie. And that's what you have to be on guard against. Uh, just because a little snippet of something might be true doesn't mean that the whole uh, narrative is true. And you have to kind of, you know, be your own best judge in terms of what's right and, and what's kind of way out there. Well, you, you too. Any any final recommendations to people on how we're going to get through the time now to the election and sort out the wheat from the chaff? My biggest one is think before you share. Uh, if you see something that seems a little bit unbelievable or beyond the pale, check it. Go to two or three or four different news sources and see if it's accurate. Stay with what I'd call the more reliable things, um, you know, uh, Associated Press, New York Times, Fox News. Uh, you know, there, there are two or three others, you know, the local, uh, Cleveland.com, Ohio.com. You know, make sure that what you're looking at uh, has enough facts in it to make you feel pretty confident that it's accurate before you share it. If you're not sure, don't share. You wouldn't want to be an unwitting ally of somebody who was trying to spread false information out there. And if you're just quickly hitting the share button all the time on your phone or on your tablet or whatever, and you're not really looking at information, you might be an unwitting agent of a disinformation campaign. Well, that, that's a good point. Uh, it's so easy to share something on the uh, on the Internet or, or to like it or to just sort of promote it without reading the whole thing if there's too much stuff. I don't know how much uh, actual attention span people have when they look at something on their cell phone that's coming off the Internet, maybe 10 seconds perhaps before they forward it on out. But uh, it's certainly a challenge to sort yeah. out this stuff, and we do have a responsibility to sort it out. Yeah. And you hit it right there. I've seen statistics that indicate that our, let me say this, our looking at social media has gone up 200 to 250 percent, depending on the platform due to COVID-19. People are home more. People aren't traveling about more. They're spending more time on their phones, on their tablets, on their computers than they were ever before. And therefore, they're more susceptible to, uh, to disinformation attacks. And they just have wow. to be cognizant wow. of that and, and, and take steps to, pr to protect themselves. Well, John Kersey, thank you for joining us. We'll have you on again, I'm sure, talking about and helping us be guided through all of this Internet information and disinformation and, and so forth. So, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, safe and healthy week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea with nothing to do.